Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 303 of the podcast. It's March 28th, 2018. Joining me today is Craig Dio, a senior leader with Studer Group. Since 2006, Craig has been an integral part of their organization as a senior leader for their speaking and conferences teams. And he now directs thought leadership across Huron Consulting Group's broader healthcare practice. Huron acquired Studer Group some time back. Craig is a highly regarded national speaker on leadership, engagement, quality, and patient safety. He works with medical staffs and healthcare executives to create highly reliable organizations where employees want to work, where uh, physicians want to practice, and patients want to receive care. Today, we're talking about his book, The E-Factor, How Engaged Patients, Clinicians, Leaders, and Employees Will Transform Healthcare. We'll talk about the differences between satisfaction and engagement how to tell if people are engaged in their work, and how to engage various stakeholders, including employees, clinicians, and executives. And we'll also talk about how Studer Group became a recipient of the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award in 2010. And in the interest of disclosure, um, last year I became a speaker through Studer Group in addition to my other work and roles, so I do have a working relationship with them. But I've enjoyed getting to know Craig and uh, to see, uh, to have the chance to share the stage with him, and I hope you will enjoy the conversation here today. Uh, for links to everything um, that, are, that we discussed here, you can go to leanblog.org slash 303. Craig, hi. Thank you for being a guest here on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Mark. So to kick things off, I maybe let you introduce yourself. Maybe tell the listeners a little bit about uh, about your career path, um, what led you um, to uh, your leadership role with uh, Studer Group. Sure. So I've been fortunate to serve as a senior leader in the Studer Group for the past 12 years. I guess uh, to rewind the clock on the career, I grew up in New Orleans, thought I wanted to eventually become a a hospital CEO, which is um, after realizing I didn't want to be a doctor, which is a whole other podcast Mm -hmm. discussion, Mm -hmm. and still just had a great affinity and love for making an improvement in that industry. Um, Received my master's in health administration and decided to pursue a career that uh, was a bit circuitous and exposing me to a lot of background in quality and patient safety improvement, uh, which is probably my first love within healthcare, and led to the opportunity to be the R&D leader for Studer Group, and that emerged into a, a really neat blended role now where I'm about half the time in the field uh, writing, speaking, and half the time helping to uh, operate different aspects of our organization. Yeah. So where, um, I mean, there might be, like you said, a longer story to that, but uh, where, where did the, uh, the, the passion or the fire uh, for healthcare develop? Very early in life. So in fact, I remember being, oh gosh, six or seven years old and going to my pediatrician's office and being so fascinated that there is this other, this waiting area full of other kids that he could help. And there was something about that helping and making other lives better that just really fired me up. And, uh, you know, the physician was the archetype of that for me, and, and it still is in a lot of ways. But it's, it was the only job I knew that existed. 
I had the opportunity to shadow physicians, learn from physicians, volunteer hundreds of hours in hospitals and physician practice. And somewhere along the, the line, realized that there is even you know, more opportunities there that benefit my skills and evolved into this role that I certainly as a six-year-old never would have envisioned existed. Can you talk a little bit also, um, you know, I think Studer Group is uh, unique and, and stands out as being a recipient of the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award. And, you know, I've, I've previously talked to guests on the podcast, um, Mary Greeley Medical Center uh, organization in Iowa that, um, you know, has won the state level uh, Baldridge and is, is working on the national level. Uh, I've talked about the Baldridge process in previous podcasts, but can you talk about um, you know that process and and what that what that meant for you and, and Studer Group pursuing and uh, achieving that level of uh, Baldridge recognition? Oh, absolutely! It's got to be on the short list of things I'm most uh, honored to have been part of and learned in my career. So I guess I'll start with why we we pursued that. And um, to talk a little bit more about our organization, Studer Group was founded in the late 90s uh, by Quint Studer, who had earned a reputation from helping to turn around two healthcare organizations where he was the one of the executives. And his approach to doing that was very much uh, honoring the people. So it was about uh, engaging the employees and the physicians uh, really helped reconnecting them to why they pursued these careers in the first place, which sounds awfully soft and basic, but mm-hmm. with the epidemic of burnout that we have and the hard jobs, uh, it's amazing how much energy that unlocks. It can be a bit dormant. And then coupling them with really good systems and processes that are, uh, you know, to use some lean language sort of standard work. And so in the early uh, 2000s, uh, we were a privately held organization uh, and achieving really good success, coaching organizations to help them achieve their results. And we noticed that many of our partners ended up becoming the early recipients of the Baldridge Award. In fact, one of those facilities that Quint led was uh, one of the first healthcare recipients. And as a coach to those groups, we have a saying that you can't take somebody further than you've taken yourself. And so we thought that in a um, in a spirit of authenticity, we should eat our own cooking and, and pursue that same level of excellence. And so in 2006, I joined the firm. The leaders who were there had already turned in their first application at the state level. And uh, we received the same <laughs> uh, moment of humility that everyone does, probably that first application of thinking like, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. you know, we're going to. We're going to win the record and uh, get this on the first entry. And it was feedback that kind of hits you between the eyes. And so four years later, uh, we were uh, fortunate enough to have improved sufficiently to uh, be named a recipient. And that's that's really been an honor. It's uh, a, a, a neat uh, club of organizations that we're in, not just as recipients, but more importantly, of those who just strive to compare themselves to those criteria because it, it's a it's an impossibly high standard of excellence. It's wonderfully instructive. Well, and, and it seemed like everyone talks about the the improvement that comes through the process of pursuing that. I, I don't know if anyone has uh, has ever reached that pinnacle uh, on their first attempt, right? It, it leads to, um, I'm sure, all sorts of eye-opening uh, moments and opportunities for improvement along the way, right? It, it really does. I mean, what I, there's many things I love about 
that distinction. But one is that it is such a catalyst for more change. It's not the thing that sparks a leadership team to want to change because you, you wouldn't even be open to this if you weren't really looking to get to the top of the mountain. But it's the thing that really fuels the journey when you realize uh, how you're performing against really best best practice standards of excellence. And it, um, I think it, it helped align our team. You know, the basic questions about how we're organized and how we operate, I looked at the questions and thought, oh, well, I know the answer to that. Mm. Well, turns out those weren't the same as my very <laughs> small uh, <laughs> executive team colleagues of, uh, you know, a handful of us answered. We were pretty divergent. And so just to answer those questions, to understand the baseline of who we are was really eye-opening, and then let alone how we're going to get better. Well, so I want to um, switch and, and talk a little bit about your book, uh, The E-Factor, you know, since you mentioned engagement and, and you know, sometimes uh, the opportunity to try to address burnout or, you know, restart the fire uh, inside people. Um, yeah, one, one question I always like to ask authors, you know, what, what led to writing the book? What was the spark that, um, that, that led to you doing that? Great question. Well, in this case, it started with an observation that uh, we had had in our organization and we saw many uh, that we served have. So if you think about employee engagement, in the 90s, uh, that was employee satisfaction. And we saw that there was an awareness through better analytics and better really understanding of how organizations function, that satisfaction is necessary, but it's insufficient when it comes to producing and sustaining results. And engagement is far more uh, purposeful in tying the feedback of employees and their view of the organization back to results. So, I, you know, we had made the pivot from thinking about satisfaction to engagement inside the organization. Most of the healthcare and education leaders that we serve had done the same, but they hadn't yet made that leap with their customers. And in fact, I think we're still in that case. In fact, even the word customer is, mm. uh, you know, a, a dirty word when it's in healthcare. Uh, but it's the same difference. Um, satisfaction and experience are often conflated to be the same thing, but they're actually really quite distinctive. And that was the point of the book was to use the parallel of employee and physician engagement to start really introducing this brand new concept of patient mm-hmm. or consumer engagement. How would you explain the difference between the terms? I, I, I came to you know some recognition, um, maybe you know in, in parallel along the way, where you know people who know my book Lean Hospitals might have noticed that uh, in in the subtitle for the first edition I used the word um, satisfaction, and in the second and third editions uh, that that word uh, is is engagement. Um, you know, I've got my thoughts, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, why is that an important distinction? Well, I think that's a wonderful evolution of your own thinking on it, too. And it's certainly something mine has evolved on. I guess a few ways to approach this. One, uh, the simplest might be that I view engage, I, I view satisfaction as a one-way street and engagement's a two-way street. So satisfaction is about measuring how much I like what I'm getting from you. Engagement's about how much I'm giving back. Hmm. And so whether it's about how an employee views their employer and workplace and organization or it's how a patient views their healthcare provider satisfaction is important you know I, I need to know if you're satisfied that's always a good predictor of market share and growth and whether you're producing a product that people value 
but it's not the same as engagement. Uh, you know, on the employee side, that might be what happens when nobody's watching and giving value back and being emotionally invested in that organization. I can be uh, I, I probably the, the other simple example I use on the employee side about how different engagement and satisfaction are is to consider if I'm a eight to five employee and I want to leave today at three o'clock to go spend some time with my kids and you say, sure, Craig, go ahead and take those two hours off. I'm very satisfied with that. I'd rate my satisfaction with that a 10, but how engaged am I in the pursuit of that organization's mission the next two hours? Not at all. I'm home playing with my children. So I could be a hundred percent satisfied and zero percent engaged at the same time. And on the patient side, similarly, I can be very satisfied with the care I'm receiving and be very uh, non-committed and disconnected from actually doing the things that I need to do to improve my own health care, like lose weight, stop smoking, exercise, Mm -hmm. take that medication to completion, challenge the physician if it's supposed to be a blue pill and I got a white pill. And all of that is what we need to do if we're going to address the 40% of deaths and 75% of costs that come from largely modifiable health conditions that can't be fixed just through medications alone. So it's the, I think it's a higher order measure of the relationship between the individual and the, you know, the group or others providing service. I'm curious on your view too, since you've come to the same conclusion, probably looking at different facts and experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I agree with you when you say satisfaction is more a measure of happiness and, and that that, I think that that's one outcome. But like you said, engagement is more, um, I, I think, not just a measure, but a process of um, commitment to the organization. And I, I agree with you. It's it's a two-way street. I think um Employees, you know, engaged employees are often the result of leaders who are engaged with the organization and are actively engaging <laughs> the employees. You know, I think of engagement, engaging as a verb, um, not just right. a, a, a noun. And and sometimes I, I'll hear people complain, uh, you know, leaders complain about, let's say, you know, look at different stakeholders as you write about in the book. Um, a lack of physician engagement. And I think the fair follow-up question, um, you know, being careful with the tone, you know, and then how it's asked is, well, what are you doing to engage the physicians? <laughs> you know, I think, that's, I think right. that's a fair fair question. Well, and, you know, I, and there's, it's so fun. Words are fascinating to me. The noun and the verb of engage is great. Um, one of the things that I learned from Dr. Judith Hibbard, who studies patient activation and patient engagement, probably more intensively than anybody else I've met, she makes it really clear that if you're a if you're a healthcare practitioner and you're trying to influence health outcomes, you have to first understand that you really can't engage anybody. That's only something that the individual can do. Mm. So I can't make you become engaged. Oh, I can't right, engage right. you, but mm. I can create an environment that facilitates you engaging. And that's the role of the leader with that physician or the, you know, frankly, the teacher with the student, um, any of those sorts of relationships that we can't make anybody change. That's something that's got to be intrinsically rooted if it's going to stick. And at the same time, we can highly influence it. And and sort of getting to that level of like, okay, well, that means I'm not necessarily responsible for the 2% that we're never going to engage here. We have to have a different strategy there. But for the 98%, 
we see tremendous variation in the same organization on engagement unit by unit, leader by leader. So same constraints, resources, budget challenges, and the rest. Yet the people who work in Mary's area are a lot more engaged than the people who work in Tom's area. Mm. And it almost always comes down to, you know, you've helped me understand it's sort of that standard work of leadership that's just not diffused, deployed, and connected back to the individual. Yeah, so let's say, you know, looking at... um let's say, uh, employees or, or clinicians, uh, you know, other than taking surveys, I mean, what are some of the things you would look for? How, how would you tell if there's a high level of engagement or, or is that something that even individual by inv- individual? How do you tell if an individual is engaged? Right. Well, I mean, even, in, even with those surveys, so even before, if you're going to give out an employee engagement survey, and you don't tell me the results are the key drivers, but you just tell me how many people took the survey, <laughs> I can probably predict directionally if it's going to come back as engaged or not. Because a marker of engagement is, do I uh, share my voice and opinion? Am I leaning in? Am I giving discretionary effort? Am I volunteering for things? Am I bringing solutions? Am I you know, rethinking sort of the orthodoxy and traditional ways of doing things and pushing the envelope? Or am I just... Mm-hmm perfunctorily performing the job. Mm. And so, you know, I think that too often there's this push to have conformity and accountability with the practice. And, uh, hey, if something's totally rules-based, evidence-based, best practice, no doubt about it, then, you know, super. There's a lot of good that can come from that probably in the short term. But so much of what most of our industries are facing is never been seen before. There is no rule book. And that requires innovation and fresh approaches. And I don't know how you get to that without first having somebody who's engaged who wants to lift their head up and go find a new way. And that requires that engagement, you know, condition to exist before the new ways will be even contemplated. That involves risk taking and all kind of, you know, other things that you have to feel safe to do. So um, I, I, I like the way you put that um, a couple of minutes ago talking about. Um, leaders creating an environment in which engagement can happen rather than um, forcing the issue. Um, does so? Would you say then? Let's say you know if if you come into an organization and there's a, a lack of engagement. Let's say employees would agree would agree. Yeah, you know people here aren't very engaged. Leaders might be complaining about that. Um, what what are some of the recommended first steps? I mean, do, does it start with leaders? What 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 are some of the first steps to create that environment if it doesn't exist? Yeah, I mean, we can go about it two ways. Certainly, given the opportunity, uh, having having leaders role model and coach these behaviors is the long term answer. And so, mm-hmm. certainly, in our work, um, you know, it's a non negotiable when we are engaged that we need to be engaged by senior leadership who are willing to role model and coach these behaviors themselves and not ask others to do something that they're not going to model. Now that's, so while I believe that is the right answer, and I think there's a lot of evidence behind that, the challenge then is, well, okay, good, but I'm not the chairman of the board to be able to make that change. I'm running my micro system within this area and I want to create excellence there. And so I think the, you know, the really interesting question about this is how do you do it when those conditions aren't optimal at the top? And, uh, you know, I think that's a lot of um, making sure that you understand how to uh, position 
what's in it for them and every sort of you know thing you're trying to advance it's about holding up the mirror and making sure that you're on your end of the street before you point fingers up mm-hmm. and there's a i think there's a process to go through of discovery on that but long term i don't know of a lot of organizational examples where there's sustained excellence at a baldridge like level that does not include senior leadership who role model and coach those behaviors themselves yeah and i've always you know, kind of wondered or, or suspected um you know, for an organization to really make progress with with lean or on, on the Baldridge journey or, you know, going down, uh, you know, the process as a partner with Studer Group. Um, you know, it seems like there, there's some minimum required starting point, uh, you know, some minimum level of engagement. You know, without that, there's, you know, maybe not a lot of hope of, of making Great progress, and 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 now as I'm saying that, it sounds kind of self-defeating or a catch-22 that you can't increase in you you can't increase engagement without already having some engagement. Um, <laughs> can can you unravel what I'm babbling about into something more useful, well, or what what are your thoughts I, on that? Well, maybe I mean, it, as you're talking, the word that comes to mind for me is a sense of urgency, mm. and I and I flip back to John Cotter's just, I think, deep wisdom on this, that um, change and transformation will not occur if they don't progress through the eight known steps of transformation. Step one is always to have a sense of urgency. And you have a sense of urgency once 75% of leaders honestly believe that business as usual is no longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. And then you have a small, powerful enough guiding coalition to go make the change. And so knowing all that, when I meet organizational leaders that are, you know, contemplating change, I mean, so something has to spark that. I mean, that's certainly the case. Something had to spark the interest in the discussion. There's sort of, and this is way too binary to reflect all the gray, but there's sort of two conditions that present themselves for us. One is that there are people who are running from a bear. They are they have a uh, clear and present threat to their success as individuals or more likely as an organization. Mm. Cash is short. Quality is bad. Uh, you know, something happened in the marketplace. A competitor's moved in. Results are declining. And there's some external impetus for those individuals that are running from that bear. Then there's another group of leaders that are running to the gold. And the bears are behind them. They're not fleeing from anything. They're chasing something that's more aspirational. And we've, we've worked with both. I say that, uh, it's, uh, it's really interesting to work with those that are, uh, that have faced some of the clear and present challenges and now are looking to set the bar for the future. But in any case, there, there is some catalyst for the conversation and the urgency that has to happen. It can either be extrinsic or extrinsic. It can be, mm-hmm. Uh, aspirational for growth and improvement, or it can be uh, to try to be restorative from avoiding a, a loss. Kind of stepping back and, 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 and thinking about um, different stakeholders, uh, you know, between you know, patients, clinicians, leaders, employees, is there one of those stakeholder groups where you tend to see the biggest engagement gap? Does it does it depend on the circumstances? What 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 do you see as as the biggest engagement challenges in healthcare? Well, all four are challenged yeah. 
No doubt about it. And I yeah. think all four together is the only way we're really going to transform as an industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, where we have statistics, and we don't have good statistics on all of them, but Gallup would tell you that only 13% of workers on the planet are fully engaged in their jobs, which is kind of mind-boggling. I mean, every time I hear that, I'm thinking, well, let's just go back to the age of the craftsman. Like, forget me making the legs of the stool and you making the chair. Like, we're because that assumes that one plus one equals three. We're just going to go back to building the whole darn thing ourselves and be craftsmen mm-hmm. again. Uh, you know, that's like the 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 uh, tombstone for modern day organizational theory that individuals come together to create something bigger. So, uh, I mean, that's definitely an issue. The industries that I have been privileged to serve in, mostly healthcare, a bit in education, um, certainly have double, triple the rates of engagement, but still not nearly what we need to achieve the goals. Physicians, similarly, bur- actually engagement's a bit higher than those stats, but burnout is, you know, maybe the other end of that coin, and it's just uh, epidemic with uh, more than half the physicians practicing right now experiencing, you know, uh, you know, clinically defined burnout. And so as dramatic as those are, I believe the bigger opportunity is with us as healthcare consumers or customers or patients or whatever word you want to use. Um, and the, the data on measuring this is just emerging. But if you look at proxies for low engagement, then you look at things like the fact that a handful of chronic diseases that are largely modifiable based on mostly smoking exercise and diet uh, drive 40% of costs and, uh, sorry, 40% of deaths and 75% mm. of costs. And as healthcare, as a, as an industry and a profession shifts from being, you know, in the United States, we're the world's best at rescue care, but we're in the bottom tier when it comes to preventative care. All of the health reform efforts are about shifting that priority. I don't think there's a way to really shift that without tackling this engagement issue. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I, I'm really passionate about closing that. I think that's, I don't know quantitatively if it's the biggest gap, but I think it's the most important one to solve. And, and I think frankly, uh, increasing engagement of healthcare leaders, employees, and clinicians is part of that answer to help mm-hmm. flip the whole model with our patients and consumers. But at the end of the day, the, the big outcome is to engage us as health consumers better. Well, and it, it seems like um, the different surveys that you might get as a patient, um, HCAP scores, um, all of that is really measuring satisfaction, not engagement. Is that fair to say? I think there's three points on that line continuum. So 20 years ago, the only word and the only surveys we had were satisfaction surveys. Did you, uh, you know, how would you rate this hospital overall? Is it excellent, very poor? And that's kind of the rating scale for everything else. Right now, those, you know, HCAPs, the um, hospital consumer assessment of healthcare providers and um uh, systems and there's a version for physician groups and other things as well. Those aren't quite satisfaction surveys. They're a bit more sophisticated. And as a quality safety guy, they're really they're really quality surveys. They're asking mm-hmm. not how satisfied you are, but how often, never sometimes, usually or always, you observe some evidence-based practice happening. So how often did you under you know, did the nurses communicate with you in a way that you clearly understood or feel prepared to care for yourself at home or understand the side effects of medications. Those questions were all very carefully researched as ones that patients could rate 
very accurately and that correlated with other measures of quality. So it's a very different than a satisfaction survey. It's an experience mm-hmm. survey that correlates with quality and neither of those are engagement. And so the best uh, example for an engagement survey is the patient activation measure, which is a 10 item questionnaire you or I could take that asks us our beliefs about our role in health. And uh, the results with I think about 200 uh, peer reviewed published articles now are quite remarkable in how nicely that predicts things like readmissions, um, how well you, you know, are using preventative tests and treatments and appropriate utilization of services. And maybe most interesting on the cost issue is that it's a great predictor of how expensive I am to the health system next year. So it's a prospective uh, uh, indicator of cost. Mm -hmm. So whether you're excited about quality or cost, and in healthcare, we got to do both because those together are value. Uh, knowing the engagement level of the person in front of me is critical to knowing how to adapt the care and create a context that supports their engagement. So, uh, yeah, uh, patient engagement, I mean, it seems to be really critical getting people, um, patients, customers even, if you will, participating actively in you know, decisions about their health. Um, you know, I've, I've got a friend of mine who's, who's very active in uh, the e-patient movement, the engaged patient movement. Yeah. Of you know, uh, trying to uh, you know encourage more uh, collaboration with healthcare providers instead of just being a passive receiver of uh, advice or dictates about health. Um, so I, I agree. That's a, that's a really interesting frontier. Um, I want to ask one other question about, um, you know, different stakeholder group, um, you know, leaders or executives. Um, I I hear a lot of people and I imagine a lot of the listeners of the podcast here are in this situation where, you know, they're they're internal process improvement people. They're in the middle of the organization. They've been given some level of mandate to go help transform the organization. And then, you know, the people in the middle um, are then trying to engage their leaders um, to to get their leaders, you know, actively participating. And you know, I guess, long story short, you know, there there are complaints about it being difficult to engage executives uh, in you know on topics related to lean quality, patient safety improvement, what have you. Do do you have advice for those those people of of how they might better engage their leaders and executives? Well, I'd first start by acknowledging the problem. It's uh, absolutely what challenges, frustrates, and frankly burns out a lot of people who work in process improvement especially. is um, So I, I guess two thoughts. One, I'd start by saying thank you to all of you out there who have accepted the mantle of responsibility that comes with leadership. I, I really believe that we need to elevate leadership as its own profession. It is a... Um, it is an optional thing that people take on in their life that rarely has to do, certainly in healthcare, with the prestige and the salary that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. It's that we want to make a bigger impact. And we've realized that I can do that some, so much as an individual contributor, but I can do it a lot more if I can better set the agenda and marshal the resources. So first, thanks for that. And I guess in the, you know, there's a lot to unpack about why a, leader may not be, quote, on, on the bus with a particular initiative. But the first one I really look at is how well they've communicated 
the benefit of the change you're proposing and the way you're proposing it in a way that aligns up with that person's agenda and the words they're looking to hear. So, uh, for example, at the early stage of my career in quality and safety, I worked with a lot of really impassioned uh, nurses, especially who were trying to make changes in the interest of patient safety and had never learned to do a cost benefit analysis or a return on investment calculation. Mm. And, um, and even if there's not the financial case to make, there's the harm reduction case to make or the lives saved case mm-hmm. to make or the quality of life case to make. And being able to convey to senior leaders how there's a return, even if it's not a financial return on that investment and how it helps achieve one of their goals is critical. And the goals aren't necessarily just organizational goals, but, um, you know, you, you, you say yes to, to martial resources as a leader when it either advances an organizational goal or a personal win. Mm. And personal wins are the harder ones to uncover. They don't show up on the dashboard, but they're the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning and makes you want to do this job for 20 years. It might be about leaving mm. a legacy. Mm-hmm. It might be about uh, excellence for excellence sake. It might be because it's the right thing to do. But learning what that is for your leader and then tuning your message to hit that I think significantly increases the likelihood of acceptance. And uh, sometimes it's just, you know, you need that Rosetta Stone of, of language to be able to connect. So mm. that mm-hmm. probably explains 5% of the cause, but I think it's a big yeah. one that I see. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, that, that's, that's a great point. What I hear you saying is, you know, executives are, uh, sometimes people in healthcare say, um, whether it's, completely true or not every patient is unique i guess we could say every executive is unique and what what i hear you saying reminds me of what uh, w edwards deming used to say in the day that in the other direction leaders need to understand that their employees are unique individuals and different employees are motivated by different things and a good leader um, comes to understand that Um, it it seems like the same would be true in reverse that uh, People who are effective get to know their, hopefully they get a chance to know their executives, but to, to understand what motivates them. Yeah. Well, and, and there's, there's ways to, to unpack that. I mean, where are they spending their time? Who do they hang out with and why? How do they structure their agendas? What's the airtime given to, um, you know, when they write, what kind of words are they really gravitating towards that are their signatures? If you sort of step back and look at the meta-analysis of all those themes, you can start mm-hmm. getting to it. But I'll tell you, having been privileged to serve now as a senior leader in our organization, one of the most fun, rare things that happens is when somebody who may not even be a direct report of mine, but more junior in the company on the org chart asks to spend time with me one-on-one to ask me those questions directly. It is so fun and really kind of surprising. I think people want to be very differential and respectful of your time, but uh, I love when somebody pulls me aside and says, I I just, I'd love to get your perspective on this project I'm working on and how you'd see it. And is it worthwhile? And get some mentoring advice. And by the way, if you use the word mentoring, I mean, that's tugging at the, you know, the purpose (laughs) for a lot of us in healthcare. (laughs) The answer to that is yes. I'd love to mentor you. And even if the selfish objective is because I want to get this project approved, uh, ask me some questions about me and my perspectives and get to the project. You're, you're, you're singing the right song. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it comes back to that same question of um, what, what are you doing to engage your leaders? Um, 
It seems like that's that's a versatile question. I mean, I, I think it's a two-way street. I think leaders have a responsibility. I don't know. Hopefully I'm not twisting your words, but le- leaders have a responsibility to create an environment in which people can engage them. Is that too circular? Yes. <laughs> it's perfect. No, I, you know, you, you have, as a, as a leader, particularly as a senior leader, you have a responsibility to create the conditions for engagement. So you have to have a mission, vision, and values that retract and attain a certain type of individual with shared values. You have to have pay and benefits that uh, don't make this volunteer work alone. You have to have uh, role modeling of behaviors that shows people you're serious about it. And by the way, supervisors have a much bigger effect than senior leaders. So after all that's true, then the day-to-day experience is all about supervisors, right? People join organizations and quit bosses. And so what you uh, are looking for out of that are typically things like uh, really good, solid communications, clearly understood expectations about how success will be measured and feedback along the way, opportunities for development, both professionally, personally, financially. And the one that's forgotten a lot is just uh, I would say humility and authenticity. People just want to yeah. have a some connection to you as a human being. And it's easy to miss that. But I'll tell you, in our work around engagement, if, uh, you know, I'm only so motivated by money and goal achievement, I'm highly motivated because I like that person and don't want to let them down. And uh, that's such a more powerful set of motivators, or I love this mission and I love our customers and I intrinsically feel the good that comes of it. And these numbers are a nice uh, proxy measure for achievement, but really you got to sort of get past the numbers and see what they're really telling you. And if, and if they're telling you that this person, you can impact a life and make them feel better driving home at night or whatever it is, that that's, that's really influential. Um, so final topic here before we wrap up, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, hopefully everyone listening would agree that uh, engagement is an important goal uh, and outcome for uh, for lean. Um, it's obviously something Studer Group, um, you know, focuses on and, and helps people with, um, you know, regular listeners of the podcast might remember uh, back to December, episode 294. Um, we had a great conversation with your uh, colleague, Clay Linkus from Studer Group, talking about connections between Lean and, and, and Studer principles. And I, I would invite people to go find that episode for you know, a deeper dive into the topic. But I, I'm curious, your thoughts on you know, connections, overlap, uh, you know, how, how, how Lean and Studer Group principles are, are complementary. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? So uh, if you're interested in that topic, definitely listen to Clay's podcast with you. And anything that we say in conflict, Clay is right and I am wrong. That's a disclaimer I'll give before I try attempt any of this, because he's certainly more versed on uh, both sides than my balance has been. But Mark, I've been fortunate to go through training with you, and we've stayed in touch over the years. And so a lot of my understanding of this intersection comes through um, our dialogue over the years. So a, a few things. One, I would say that there's very little if any uh, dissonance between the approaches, there's different words and there's different tools in the toolkit, but the principles that underpin this are very consistent. You know, um, honoring the expertise of the person who does the job, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, harnessing, you know, enabling them to solve challenges. Uh, You know, I often say that 
uh, when I'm asked if there's two or three things you can do as a leader to facilitate engagement, one is to remember that your job isn't to do the job for the team. Your job is to build their capacity to do the job. And nobody fights their own ideas. And so if you use the many excellent tools in the Lean Toolkit to help people solve problems, identify true root causes, and help them implement effective solutions, uh, there's this sense of pride and of ownership that comes from that that's so durable. And it's a far better way to lead than the top-down, you must. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I guess the, you know, the phrase you've helped me really understand over the past couple of years is this, that what we've identified from practical application are a whole lot of pieces of standard work for leadership that are uh, packaging together a lot of evidence-based approaches. So for example, rounding for outcomes, one of the most uh, prominent practices we teach, we developed it because we looked at what Gallup has learned about the drivers of engagement and thought, well, gosh, you know, rather than wait to find out how the employees rate that every year, shouldn't we like have a conversation about that between every leader and every direct report as often as we can? And so you can, you could have an approach that says, okay, everyone, here's a binder of evidence on that, figure out your own way of doing it. And of course, you're going to get a ton of variation and there might be some good that comes of that. And there's going to be a whole lot of failed attempts or inefficiencies, but we've, we've coached a thousand organizations, hundreds of thousands of leaders to adopt rounding for outcomes, which takes 30 minutes once a month and addresses all of the key drivers of, uh, you know, typical engagement and, uh, you know, very compactly accelerates those results. And so I think that's the sort of, you know, a couple of areas of intercepts. And Studer Group has also in, in recent years been doing this type of work in education. It's probably worth pointing out. Yeah, K-12, higher ed. And what's really fun, I mean, we feel so fortunate with the, the company we keep. So uh, one of our, I think we have a team of 15 professionals dedicated to K-12 and higher education, seven of whom are PhDs, and one of whom is a superintendent of a Baldwin recipient school district in the last few years. And so you just sort of see the same principles apply. And there's a whole lot more universality in these concepts than distinction by industry. Yeah. Well, in, engaging teachers, uh, engaging students, uh, I could see uh, a lot of parallels. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're in agreement. There's there's a certain you know, universal nature of, uh, of these, of these principles. And, and, you know, from when my, from my first reading of, um, Quint Studer's book, Hardwiring Excellence, you know, I was drawn to it, not just because there are, are similarities, but, you know, I think, you know, there, there's, there's some language and, and approaches, um, you know, from the Studer group, um, circles that I, I, I think are, are good additions to, uh, our lean practice, this idea of, um, evidence-based leadership um, certainly appeals to people in healthcare who are used to talking about evidence-based management. And, um, you know, I, I, w- I would certainly encourage listeners who um, are working in healthcare who have, you know, kind of the hardcore lean background to, to also go check out um, not just Quint's book, but um, Craig's book, um, The E-Factor, um, which you can find um, through the Studio Group website, um, through Amazon. Um, so as we're as we're wrapping up here, um, Craig, I want to you know thank you for sharing a lot of um, I think a lot of great insights on the practice of engagement, not just the outcome of engagement. A lot of uh, a lot of good tips. Um, if, if people want to uh, either contact you or learn more 
um, about Studer Group, how, how would you recommend um, they, they, they go online or reach out? Oh, thanks for asking. So our website is studergroup.com, S-T-U-D-E-R. My email address uh, ends with at studergroup.com, and it's just my first dot last name before that. So craig.deao at studergroup.com. And maybe the easiest thing these days is LinkedIn. That's like the professional mm-hmm. version of Facebook. And I'm, I'm, I'm the only Craig Do out there. So if you type in D-E-A-O <laughs> and find a Craig, I'd love to connect with you in that sphere as well. All right. Well, thank you for um, taking time. I'm, I'm glad we could do uh, the podcast here, uh, Craig. And uh, again, I'll encourage people to go um, check out the book. It's titled The E-Factor, How Engaged Patients, Clinicians, Leaders, and Employees Will Transform Healthcare. Craig, thank you so much uh, for, for telling us about um, your work and, and these ideas today. It's been an honor. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.